We are in a series of talks, as Christy said, called Ask London. We're looking at some of the toughest objections that are going around. I think we've engaged in some pretty tough ones already. And I would say this morning's one is probably the toughest of the lot. James has alluded to what it is already, but let's roll the video and we're going to see how people are framing this particular objection. How do you seek to explain some of the very bad things that we, we do see happen in this world? I think the uh, bombings last week in, in Belgium was a very good example. Like the Catholic, Catholic uh, faith particularly and uh, paedophiles, I do really, really, really struggle with that, but um, knowing how many paedophiles have been protected by the Catholic faith. Why does God do bad things? And why does God hurt, make things that hurt people? And to think that people that are you know, not paedophiles and not sort of insane in that way that paedophiles are, that they would make reasoned decisions in boardrooms or church rooms or whatever to say, no, we need to cover up this act and send this priest off to Africa or whatever and where they can continue their abuse is just a disgrace. Why, if God is all-powerful... He allows certain things to happen or doesn't, rather doesn't step in, doesn't prevent things from happening. The answer that has been given to me a few times is it's part of a larger plan that, that God may be But They just never seem to, to answer, um, answer my, my doubts. I found it really hard when our friend Joe got diagnosed with cancer because I couldn't work out why she had been chosen to get cancer mm -hmm. um, when the rest of us were perfectly healthy and fine. If God does exist, why would he develop and continue to develop new bacteria and viruses such as the Zika virus, Ebola virus, capable of causing such destruction? Why would that be allowed? Why? He lets bad things happen to good people. Mm. I don't know why God, if he is all capable, doesn't intervene mm -hmm. and say, oh, well, I'm going to take that away, or I'm going to cure it, or I'm going to allow you to get to the doctor in time that it hasn't spread. In November, I was diagnosed with bone cancer, and um, I've got a very young family, and I kind of think I'm a good person, and I just kind of wonder why... God sends these challenges to us, really, and yeah, yeah, that's my main question, really. Every week I say this, but I think no more so than this week. We're just ever so grateful, aren't we, to the people who have put these questions and objections that we have on camera each week. I think it takes no small degree of courage and indeed eloquence to frame these uh, questions and objections. So we're ever so grateful for people who've, who've done that. And indeed, if you're here this morning to engage with this particular question, then we're really glad that you're here. And, and thank you for taking the time to come and do so, because this is, I don't think it gets any more profound than this in some ways. I would say for Christians, this is probably the biggest objection that we need to face up to. I heard one person say recently, it's the best reason not to be a Christian. And I think one of the reasons why it's such a strong objection is because it has both a very, has a powerful logical uh, element to it and also has a powerful emotional element to it. I think a number of the objections don't necessarily have both of those things. I think this objection, this question has both a logical and an emotional power to it. What I mean by that is that, for example, an, an oncology professor studying cancer will come at things from a different perspective as somebody who is suffering from cancer. 
They're both engaging with the same suffering, but they've both got very different and powerful perspectives on it. And both are really important, and I want to engage with both of those things this morning. So, with that in mind, we're going to try and engage with this in three steps. I want to look, first of all, logical answers to the problem of suffering. And then secondly, what does it mean for the existence of God? Let the argument hinge, if you like, on step two. And then question three, what about our emotional objection? So are there any logical answers? What does it mean for the existence or otherwise of God? And then thirdly, what about our emotional objection to the issue? So first of all, are there any logical answers? I think one more distinction to bear in mind is the different types of suffering that we're talking about, or the two particular different types of suffering we're talking about. Because on the one hand, we have suffering that is caused by human evil. So, for example, the bombings in Paris early this year, or the dreadful child abuse perpetrated by priests, both mentioned in the video. Or you've also got suffering that is caused naturally, by that I mean the non-human agency. So the Zika or Ebola viruses that were also referred to in the video. Now, there are links between the two different types. So you can have famine and malnutrition, which can be connected, perhaps, to human greed and deforestation, for example. There are connections. But I think, broadly speaking, it's helpful to bear those two distinctions in mind as we go forward. What I want to do, really, is just look quite quickly at three potentially logical explanations that do get put forward to help us grapple and engage with this profound problem of suffering. Let me say it right up front. I don't think any of the three are conclusive. I think all of them will help us to an extent, but I think all three have particular holes in them as arguments. Let me just run through those three with you. The first argument is the argument from free choice, that people have free will, is an argument that gets put forward. Just to unpack that, let me just say it like this. The claim of the Christian faith is that a a loving God, not out of any need or lack of himself, but out of an expression of love, created a loving world. And he then endowed that world with the capacity and the ability to express and experience love. And then furthermore, that loving God put a moral framework around that world in order that that love might be experienced and given. And of course, genuine love requires an exercise of choice, doesn't it? Any genuine love requires choice. If I was to hold a gun to your head and tell you to tell me that you love me, you may well do so, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have any meaning, would it, as an authentic expression of love. Genuine love requires choice. To be able to love genuinely, we have to have the capacity to say yes, and therefore we have to have the capacity to say no. And so we do sometimes see suffering as a result of people wrongly exercising a choice that needs to be there for genuine love to be experienced. But, of course, that only gets us so far. It's not a conclusive argument at all, because an awful lot of human suffering takes place without any reference to human choice at all. The lady in the video suffering from bone cancer did not contract that as a result of any human choice. So that argument only gets us so far. Second argument that sometimes gets put forward is that suffering happens to form character in us, to prepare us for the kind of people that will be in eternity. And the Bible absolutely does talk about this. It says that that suffering forms character and perseverance and hope. And indeed, many people who don't believe the Bible would say, yes, I, I agree with that to an extent. People might say, yeah, it's possible for the worst of times to form something good and positive in one's character. I remember a friend of mine 
and we were colleagues at the same school when I was teaching. And he was known as a particularly compassionate teacher by the kids and their parents and the staff. Really very effective in the kind of pastoral side of the school. And I want, he once told me that he felt the reason for that, he put it down to the very, very difficult home life that he'd had and the very serious bullying that he'd experienced at school. He felt those things, that suffering, if you like, had formed in him a character that meant he could really identify with kids and he had a genuine sense of compassion and empathy for them, which many of us witnessed. But there's also a hole in that argument too, <laughs> because a lot, a lot of people suffer a lot more than others. Suffering does not seem to be evenly, proportionally distributed, does it? And what's more is people with very good character sometimes suffer an awful lot, and people with very bad character sometimes don't suffer at all. And furthermore, for some people, suffering can work the other way around than how it worked for my friends. Suffering can engender a huge amount of bitterness and anger in somebody, which in, then, which in then causes more suffering as a result. So that argument, although perhaps helpful to an extent, only gets us so far. There are more, but I'm just giving you three. Is the suffering is a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of the human condition being broken and our inability to adhere to um, a correct moral standard, if you like. And that's true to an extent for some people, maybe some of us here today. It's our own moral failings or the failings of others that have meant that we have suffered. But again, the whole in that argument is that often good people suffer horribly and often bad people don't suffer at all. So the point I'm making is that we can't really apply one explanation to this massive problem of suffering. I'm not even sure we can apply any of these in combination. And I think the Bible would agree with that. And the Bible would tell us that. You might have heard of the book of Job in the Old Testament, which really is a book exclusively about the problem of suffering. And it's, it's about both kinds of suffering. Suffering caused by human evil and suffering caused by natural causes. Natural, uh, causes. Job, the central character, suffers horribly in the book. He, he loses all of his sons and daughters. He loses all of his possessions. His health is terrible. And one of the key messages of the book of Job ultimately is, you don't understand what the reasons are. That comes through very loud and clearly in the book of Job. Because Job's friends keep very unhelpfully trying to give him loads of answers. And none of them really fully explain and make sense of his experience of deep suffering. Do you think... Do you think the most honest answer, I think, to give to the problem of why a loving, powerful God would allow suffering is the one that Job himself comes through in the Bible. We don't know. We don't know. Often that is the situation that we need to arrive at. Yes, suffering sometimes happens because of human free will or because of poor choice or because of physical laws within nature that I haven't had time to go into or to develop character. But a lot of the time, it isn't to do with those things. And we have to be able to say, we don't know. I don't know why a young mum contracts cancer. I don't know. I don't know why people professing religious faith commit appalling abuse on children. We don't know why lethal bacteria and viruses emerge. Sometimes we need to say, I don't know. And I'm just so, so sorry. That's an appropriate answer and place to arrive at. Just my own personal experience is very weak. That reality, uh, very my sort of best mate, probably the best man at our wedding, 
Uh, he lost his wife uh, just about a week or 10 days ago. She's a 37-year-old woman, a mother of two, one of the most brilliant women that I know. Uh, she's a great friend to me in her own right. We've known each other since we were children, and I was spending time with him uh, this week. And my response to him really was, mate, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know why this has happened. It's awful, and I'm sorry. And that is an appropriate place to arrive at sometimes. So the question, therefore, I think, or a different question perhaps, is if the honest answer to suffering is to say sometimes there are reasons, but often we just don't know, if that's a a place to arrive at, then what then do we conclude about God? That's our second question this morning. What is this existence of God? Because if we can't pin down an, a precise answer or a precise set of answers to explain the question of suffering, does that then disprove the existence of God? Which is where many people would now land. Well, let me just give you a very brief, if I may, sprint through philosophical history to see how that argument has emerged that it's got to the point today where people are able to make that connection. So you might have heard of David Hume, who's a famous philosopher in the 18th century. And he, I think, kind of kicked off this argument in motion, set it in motion, by framing the issue like this, very, very concisely and helpfully. He said this, is God willing but unable? In which case, God is impotent. Is God unwilling and able? In which case, God's malevolent, he's evil. Is he willing and able? Whence there from does suffering come? David Hume says, and I think all of us would join in with that heart cry. And the argument moved forward through the centuries, and it's now got to the point where I'm putting this in simple terms, but the argument is kind of framed like this, logically speaking. Hume himself kept his conclusions quite vague, but people would now frame the argument like this, in simple terms. One, an all-loving, all-powerful God would not permit suffering. Or in Hume's language, a God who is willing and able would not permit suffering. Two, Suffering exists. Three, therefore there is no God. That's how the argument is kind of being framed now. Now that, in some senses, seems to be a concise, pithy, logical conclusion. But actually, it's not where most philosophers, from a logical, philosophical point of view, would now land. Many philosophers from both sides of the faith aisle would land in a different place. And they would point out that this argument does have a a flaw to it, philosophically speaking. And the flaw in the argument, the premise that's flawed, is that we're assuming that if there was a good reason for God allowing suffering and evil, we would know what it is. And of course, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present as any genuine God would be, then by definition, it or he would know things that we don't. That seems to stand up perhaps more. And actually, this uh, train of thought is, a, is, comparatively speaking, quite a modern phenomena. In the sense that it's only really in Europe, in the last 250 years, where people would say, if there was a good reason for God to allow s- suffering and evil, I would know what it was. Most of history, most societies just wouldn't land there normally. Most societies in history wouldn't go that way. They would say something like this. An all-loving, all-powerful God would not permit suffering. Two, suffering absolutely exists. Three, I can't think of a good reason, and therefore this is a mystery. 
That's where most societies, up until the European societies of the last 250 years, would land. Now, we can write them off as backward and, and less advanced, but we need to bear in mind just how much suffering people experienced in history up until the last 250 years. Let me explain it a different way. I want to borrow an illustration from another philosopher, Alvin Plantinga. And uh, he says this. He says, imagine that you own a St. Bernard dog, a little bit like this one, hopefully. Uh, and we'll call the St. Bernard dog Jerry. <laughs> hopefully we'll call the St. Bernard dog Jerry any second now. Jerry uh, is a very large dog, and therefore Jerry is best kept in a kennel outside. Okay? He's a big, big dog, Jerry. Needs a big kennel outside, not the sort of dog you're going to have in your room. And Alvin Plantinga would say, now, if you go outside into your garden and you look into the shed, sorry, look into the kennel, and the kennel is empty, it's very reasonable to conclude what? That Jerry is not in the kennel. However, if you go out to the kennel again, and you look inside it again, and this time you're looking for a sand fly, you might come to a different conclusion. Now, you know what a sandfly is? Like three millimeter midges. They call them noceums in America because you, you can't see them. And Alvin Plantinga says, if you, if you looked in the kennel for a noceum, you wouldn't say, I can't see one, so there's definitely not one here. You'd say, by definition, sandflies are extremely hard to see. So I can't see one, but I don't know if that means there definitely isn't one here. And many people assume that if there was a reason for God to allow suffering and evil, those reasons would be more like St. Bernard's than they would be like sandflies or noceums. And I guess my question is, is that the case? Is that true? Is it not more logical to say, if God is real, then he is infinite and all-knowing? And I am finite and limited in knowledge, therefore he will know things that I don't. Let me give you perhaps one more example. Imagine that um, aliens are observing planet Earth and they've got a live video feed to uh, observe a small scene on planet Earth to try and learn what humans are like. And the scene that their video feed gives them is this. There's a woman lying on a bed and she is screaming in agony. And there are people with masks moving around her bed. And one of the people with a mask, with, with mask takes a knife out, cuts her stomach open, lifts a small child out, and takes the child out of the room. That's the scene. What would the aliens conclude human beings were like from that perspective? They would conclude that humans were the most abominable and cruel of creatures from that perspective, from that moment in time. But of course, with a different perspective, as, as, as time elapses, we know that a caesarean section is taking place and that the doctors are doing what is best and loving for the mother and for the child. And as time rolls on, the baby gets brought back in to the loving arms of the mother. Because time moved on, a completely different perspective on what seems to be awful is given. One uh, author put it like this. If you have a God who is great and transcendent enough for you to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering, then you have at the same moment a God who is great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for suffering that you can't. Now, all of that said, we need to return to what we said at the beginning, which was this, that many people, perhaps many of us here this morning, we're not really approaching the question from a philosophical point of view. We're approaching the question from a personal point of view. It's painful 
And that's a different perspective. So question three this morning, what about our emotional objection to this deep problem of suffering? Because people might say, listen, Philip, to be honest with you, I don't really care about your arguments and illustrations. If there is a loving, all-powerful God, this just would not happen. He wouldn't allow the horrors of children being killed in Aleppo. He wouldn't allow a hideous virus like Ebola to wipe out people. He wouldn't allow 11 women every day to be raped in this nation alone. He just wouldn't allow these things. Therefore, I cannot believe that either he is true or worthy of trust. And there's a a visceral, emotional objection to the question. And it can lead people to say, listen, whatever logic or argument you throw at me, I, I just don't really care. I am hurting so much that I just can't believe in a God or certainly not one that I could trust. And listen, I I get that. I really do. That is a very reasonable place to find yourself in. And I think all of us this morning, whatever suffering we've experienced or observed, would surely have sympathy with that view. There just can't be a God or one that's worthy of trust given what I have experienced or what I have observed. I do get that, I really do, this week of all weeks. And much of the the Bible, I think, is sympathetic to that view as well. Like if you've read bits of the Bible, you'll know that, that the Bible is full of people crying and lamenting and saying, this is awful. Happens throughout the Bible. Just that we don't read it out very often on a Sunday. Maybe we should. And yet many of those same people who cry out, who lament, who weep, who who cannot get their head around the depth of suffering they're experiencing or observing, come to a place where they trust God. Now I get that for that process to happen, that is a huge step to experience or witness deep suffering and come to a place where you feel like God is both true and to be trusted is a huge step to take. I get that. And so I thought, what would be helpful for us to do would be to hear four stories from four real people in this church as to their own experiences, as to how they have either been through or are in significant suffering, and of how they have found God to be both true and trustworthy in it. So my wife Caroline is going to join me, and she's going to uh, read these stories for us. They're just snapshots, really, of different people's testimonies, but I think they're going to be really helpful. Obviously, not all of us will know these people, but that's okay. I think they're going to be stories that are going to help us engage with this question. Okay, so this is by Andy Voice. After years of hardships, including long-term Crohn's disease and all of the associated complications, I've realized a few things. Firstly, if God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. He doesn't allow what you can't handle. Secondly, character comes through experience. You live and you learn. God has used my situations to help others in the same way. I can see God's hand in some of the suffering. But mostly, when you're going through things, when things get tough, when it seems that all hope is lost and you're crying out, why me, God? I finally calm down and know that God is good all of the time. It's for a reason. It has a purpose. And God will never forsake me. The challenges in our lives are what makes life interesting. Overcoming them is what makes life meaningful. Um, This is Liz Corbett's story. 
I once heard a Christian leader talk as he was going through cancer, and he said something that has stayed with me during my illness. He said that when God gave us salvation, it was like he gave us a million pounds, and his cancer was, in comparison, like God was holding just five pounds back for the moment. I have a chronic bone infection in my leg that has resulted in over 90 operations, many other complications, including blood clots, and I'm in the process of having my sixth knee replacement. For me too, when I compare that minuscule five pounds, it's nothing compared to the million pound salvation I've been given and I am grateful. God has used this in so many ways and I've been able to speak to many about how God helps me through and I rejoice. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will one day, I will run again in heaven. Richard and Ruth Gatwood say this. God gave us our children, Sam and Beth, after six years of not being able to conceive and being told medically it wasn't possible. He also gave us a third child, Gabriel, but we lost him halfway through the pregnancy in 2010. This happened three weeks after Richard's mum died, and the same week we found out Ruth's dad had cancer for the third time. We still don't know why God chose to call Gabriel home so early, but we know that no matter how hard it was and is, God is in control and never makes mistakes. Our trust and relationship with God grew so much during the hard times as we saw very clearly our need and our reliance on him and not ourselves. The grief and questions were very real, but God walked with us through it all. God has used our painful loss to bring us closer to him, focus us on the hope of heaven and help others going through similar things. And the final testimony comes from someone who wishes to remain anonymous. As someone who has experienced very significant childhood trauma at the hands of my father, I have found out, I found that over the years, I've become more and more convinced that God is who he says he is, rather than less convinced. I'm still very much dealing with the awful impact that this trauma has had on me. However, I have found that as the pain and grief has got worse, has caused me to very tightly cling more and more to God's promises. I honestly do not know how people cope with things like this without the absolute certain hope that I have found in God. There are many of God's promises that I have not yet seen fulfilled, yet I know that I can trust God and believe that his promises are true. I don't know why these things happened or why things are still so hard and there are many unanswered questions but I have realised that no matter how bad things are or how much worse they get, I am able to say that my soul is well because of what Jesus has accomplished. This does not mean that all the hurt, pain, flashbacks, confusion and grief have gone far from it. I am currently in a place where the pain and moment-by-moment impact of what has happened is worse than it has ever been. Yet I am also in a place where I know a deep, deep peace that I can trust God. And when I trust God, I am trusting in one who is completely faithful and can be trusted for who he is. My trust in God is based on who God is rather than on my circumstances. They are um, they're hard stories to hear. I find them hard to hear and I've heard them many times through this week. Uh, and so we do find them hard to hear. But they are also, I think they really help us. And they really help us to see how the Christian story... The gospel does help people to make emotional sense of suffering, deep suffering in those cases. 
And I'm only speculating, but I guess all those people in different ways were faced with the same conundrum, as many people are faced with in, in deep suffering. On the one hand, do we say, this is just too painful. <laughs> it's just too awful. I can't believe in a God who would allow this or one that I could trust. Or do they say, the only place I can find hope in this is in God. And so therefore, I'm going to allow this suffering to drive me to him rather than from him. You see, if you, if you ask a lot of modern people, what do you believe about God? Or uh, what do you think ultimate reality is? I guess some people might say, I, I think there's something spiritual, but I, I don't know what that is. And there's a different uh, talk, I guess, a different discussion in that sense. But a number of modern people, if you ask them the same question, would say, and you push them to ask, answer honestly, would say, no, I think ultimate reality, bottom line is ultimate reality is mass energy. It's space, time, chance. That's the bottom line. That's what it all goes back to. I think if, if that is the bottom line, if that is ultimate reality, then I think you are, may I gently say, forced to accept there really is no hope in the midst of suffering. If there really is no God, if ultimate reality is simply mass energy, time, space, and chance, then I think people at Richard Dawkins and Bertrand Russell are right when they say things like this. Dawkins said, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Bertrand Russell said, we simply have to reconcile ourselves to an unyielding sense of despair when faced with a problem of human suffering. With no personal, transcendent God, we're left in a situation where there is no objective basis for saying anything is good or evil. You can say, I don't like something. I prefer that not to be the case. But you can't say that it's good or evil. It just is. And we're left in a situation where creatures are born and, and creatures die. And the strongest destroy the weak. And one day we die. And one day this whole earth burns up and evil wins. And that is a story where I don't think there's anything ultimately to cling on to. There is no emotional or existential answer to a problem that I think so all of us so deeply feel there must be an answer to. And we can say it's just an emotional crutch to help us, but I think the point is also all of us deeply feel there must be an answer to this beyond pitiless indifference, meaninglessness. And the Christian story says this. It says this, there is good and there is evil. And then there's an objective basis for knowing that. It says God is good. And it says suffering is awful. The story says that God enters our pain in the person of Jesus. That he takes human evil upon himself. That human evil is then renounced and forgiven. Death is undone and defeated. The world is ultimately made new and love wins. That's the Christian story. It's the gospel. The Christian story, I think, contains the power and the resources that we need to genuinely sustain us in suffering. The secular story that I outlined, if you push it to its logical conclusion, does not have any power to sustain or undergird anyone in the midst of suffering. There's nothing to cling on to. Whereas the Christian story pivots, as I was praying before, the whole thing pivots on the idea that God became a human and lived and suffered horribly and died to rescue us and bring us to God. And with that story in mind, you can look at suffering and you can see both meaning in it 
and you could have the most you can have the emotional resources to engage and endure within it. We're going to close in just a few moments. I wonder whether Ross and the band could come and join me. And I just want to close with just a couple of minutes of further thoughts. We said this morning, haven't we, that very often the problem of human, and su- human evil and suffering forces us to come to a place where we just say, I don't know. And Christians need to be able to say that. All of us, I think, need to be able to say that. But I do know what the answer isn't. I do know that the answer isn't that God doesn't love us. Whatever the answer is, I know that's not the answer. Frederick Nietzsche, who is no friend of matters faith and Christianity, he said this, he said that God's justified human life by living it themselves, the only satisfactory response to the problem of human suffering ever invented. Nietzsche had a brilliant mind and I think he hit upon the truth. The only satisfactory answer to the problem of human suffering ever invented is a God who would come and live and suffer as a human being. And so when I look at the cross, I see God on a cross. (laughs) I see that God suffered horribly, beyond description. And then that also helps me to see something else. I also see that if God is infinite and all-knowing, how much must he have loved us when he first created us? Because he knew what it would ultimately take to bring us back to him. He must have known what it was going to take for him to bring us back to him for us to be able to have a genuine love relationship founded and built on choice as all love relationships must be, he knew that for that to be possible, he would have to suffer horribly. How much must he have loved us? How much must he have wanted a genuine, authentic love relationship with us to put in motion something that would require his suffering? So whatever questions that we hurl at God for... so well (laughs) for the problem of human evil and suffering and we hurl them and it's right that we should the answer cannot be that God doesn't love you whatever the answer is it can't be that and furthermore the resurrection tells me something else the resurrection if it's true it tells me that Jesus' promises must be trustworthy All his promises must be trustworthy if he really did rise again from death to life, which he promised he would, making himself God. He must be trustworthy. And so therefore, his promise that death is ultimately not the end must be trustworthy because he beat it. It tells me that his promise to return is true. It tells me that on that day, there'll be a judgment. And the human evil will not go unpunished. Our deep subjective sense of justice that we all feel so strongly is backed up by his objective sense of justice. And it tells me something else. That more than a judgment, there will be a renewal. That his promise to make all things new. And to quote Samwise Ganji make all the sad things untrue it's going to happen 
the resurrection tells me that his promises must be true. And that whatever the answer is to human suffering, whatever the answer is to why a 14-year-old girl in our borough would lose her life like that, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that one day the resurrected Jesus will return. And somehow, somehow, the worst of things will pale, the worst of things will pale into insignificance in comparison to the absolute wonder and perfection of this earth being utterly renewed into the earth it was always supposed to be. But this earth will be utterly perfect and somehow the very worst of things will fade in comparison to the bliss and perfection of this earth being as it was always supposed to be. first song that Ross has chosen for us to sing is a song called All Who Are Thirsty. It's just a really simple song. I think it's a helpful way for us to respond, to reflect in singing. Very simple song. And it's a song, I think, for all of us. Whether we're in the midst of deep suffering that we barely can even articulate, or whether life is brilliant at the moment. Whether we are convinced of the claims of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, or whether we're not even sure if God exists at all. All of us are welcome here. And all of us, I think, are able to use this song to reflect because it simply invites you to bring pain and sorrow, whatever that might be, yours, somebody else's future, to God. That's what the song invites you to do, is to bring it to Him. And you might do so in faith and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand it, but I trust you that you're in it. You might do so in reflection and exploration. I don't know if you're there, God, but I, I bring this to the table. I'd encourage you to use this song to reflect wherever you're at this morning. We've got a prayer team who are already here and would love to pray with anyone about anything. Our heart each Sunday is that we are here to encounter and experience God. And so for any reason at all, why not come and receive prayer for healing? good things that are happening in our lives this week that we want to see God do even greater things with or perhaps this very question of human suffering come receive prayer for it if you're in it come receive prayer for it if you're observing it come receive prayer for it if you don't understand it we have a God who loves us the cross tells us that and these people would love to stand with you and to pray and to bring the love of God to your life and your situation should we stand